I was very happy to be offering this retreat. All of us were very happy to have this opportunity for you to kind of get this broad sweep of the Brahma Vihara practices, which generally I think Leela mentioned isn't uh, somewhat rare to be exposed to all these different practices. And someone said earlier that they hadn't done the joy practice. Some people hadn't done the equanimity practice before. And so really to have this experience of finding out about these very uh, beautiful practices where we can cultivate our heart and our mind, these these practices really uh, are to increase our happiness to increase our happiness and to diminish our suffering. You know, that's what these teachings and practices are for. And what can be more beautiful than that? You know, really a path or a way that is going to show us how to have more happiness in our life and less suffering in our life. And so in some ways we can think of this as these practices as more tools you know, we collect tools for um, our, our path, and now we have some more tools. And these tools, these Brahma-viharas, the way they're practiced, um, particularly through the use of words, use of language, or these concepts, that uh, someone said once are like when you say the words for a particular Brahma-vihara, it's like entering into a particular website. You know, like you punch in, you know, empathetic joy and you say the phrases and then you start to experience this uh, uh, site that's bringing you more and more into the quality itself. In this case, into the experience of a brighter state of awareness. It's really what happens is we experience more joy or we experience more loving kindness, more equanimity, more compassion. The mind and the heart, the be- our being starts to brighten. We lighten up. And the reason we lighten up is because that sense of a self, this kind of ego self, this self that gives us a feeling of being separate and isolated and cut off from all other life, other people, other things, we kind of, where we may feel a bit alienated. There's a quality in that experience of self, we call it the self, selfing, when we're involved in that activity, where we start to feel heavy or dense or um, uh, uh, kind of a bit gross, not in a gross, gross kind of way, but you know, it's just very densified, solidified. And as we release those patterns of grasping and aversion and confusion, as we start to release those patterns, those activities, we start to lighten up. There's a lightening, or we become, sometimes you might say, we become more transparent. Uh, There's more space. We feel that quality of, of spaciousness or lightness. And, and, and sometimes we may feel the quality of kind of a, a brightness or a radiance. 
And not only do we experience that for ourselves, but other people pick that up too, as we do when we're around other people who have lightened up in that way. You know, the heart is very uh, open and full and connecting. And so these, the, we start to feel this quality of being more happy. And happiness is a word that sometimes isn't, um, uh, doesn't resonate all the time for people. We can have an image of what it means to be happy, you know, kind of this ha ha ha, you know, kind of joyful and, you know, but happiness, I think when we speak about happiness in this, in this path, we're really talking about more of a kind of an easeful contentment, just kind of a quiet, sometimes kind of a quiet inner contentment or satisfaction, where we're not as much in conflict with things. We're not struggling as much with the way things are. And in this, so that, so we're in a way we're releasing that struggle and there's a quality of more kind of easefulness or satisfaction, contentment. So in the beginning when when we do these practices, it's not so unusual to have a lot of images, a lot of ideas about what our experience would be like or what I would be like, you know, if I was really in that place. These um, spiritual ideas, which are very much reinforced by the statues that we have around and the different pictures of the deities and, you know, the uh, Kuan Yin bodhisattvas and, you know, and I mean, it seems like that's sort of like where we're supposed to be, you know, like we're supposed to be able to sit like that, you know, completely immovable and, you know, eyes gaze down and unshakable by anything at all. Nothing bothers us, nothing affects us, you know, that kind of pure detachment. And, and it's easy to get those kinds of ideas. And then when we're not in that place, it's easy to compare and put ourselves down and judge ourselves and think that we haven't gone very far and have all kinds of then new ideas or maybe the same old ideas about ourselves that aren't actually that helpful. They're not that useful. Because what's really so important on this path, whether we're engaged in the mindfulness or we're engaged in the Brahma-viharas, is to really start where we are. It's just to start where we are. And it's a beautiful thing about the mindfulness practice where we're continually asked to just be with our experience just as it is. To be with our experience just as it is. And, and, and it, 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 this is what we say over and over and over, be with what's happening just as it is, just as it is. And we do hear that and we get that and, and we practice that. And yet what we find often is that inner struggle or that uh, judge, that undermining kind of uh, inner voice. But when we talk about this be with your experience just as it is, is what I would call the first level of equanimity. And I want to talk a little bit more about equanimity tonight. And this first level of equanimity, because I think that, again, we could have this idea that equanimity 
is a completely peaceful, non-reactive, spacious, kind of firm, balanced state. And unless we're in that place and there's no agitation and there's no restlessness, then we're not equanimous. And I think that that's not a very uh, useful way of thinking about equanimity because then in a way we may feel we can never reach that. We can never get there. So I think it's important to open to the possibility of what I would call the first layer or the first level of equanimity, which really arises when we are simply attentive and present with our experience just as it is, however it is. Even if there's some agitation or restlessness or even judgment or anger or sorrow or grief or all the whole emotional range that we experience as human beings. And as we bring that first, that moment of mindful awareness, that mindful attention, right in that moment, we are already practicing equanimity. Because in that moment, right in the point of awareness, and Leela was pointing to this as well this afternoon, right in that point of awareness, that awareness itself is the equanimous point. There is no reactivity in the awareness itself. Which is why sometimes we call, or I call, and I feel and experience awareness as love. Because awareness completely embraces the experience in myself and all things that are happening in that moment without any contention, without any conflict, without any struggle. Awareness purely knows, purely is interested, purely is present with, not in conflict with. And that, it, that in itself is a quality of kindness, is a quality of love. Any moment that I bring that quality of attention to whatever is happening, I'm already bringing forth equanimity and metta, right there. And I think sometimes that gets overlooked because we're so interested in the experience that we're having that somehow we have to clear that slate of greed, hatred, and confusion of all, that, all the agitated, restless states of mind, that unless we do that, then our practice isn't worth anything. And I think we, we miss the value and the, the power, really, the power of a moment of mindful attention, mindful pres- presence. When I am in contact with what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, the sensations in my body, what kinds of reactions are moving through my mind, how I'm responding to the situation, to another person, what's happening, what's happening now, what's happening now. As Leela said this afternoon, she said, we become the observer rather than the participant. Or another way I might say that is we become the observer rather than the actor. We get so identified with the one who is acting, or maybe acting out, we might say, if it's some kind of reaction or greed, you know, hatred, delusion. We get so identified with that action that we forget about the awareness, the quality of our being that is already awake. 
that I am awake. When I am present, I am awake. I mean, what else does awake mean? Awake means I'm conscious and I know what's happening in the present moment. I know if I'm in a reactive, reactive mind. I know if I'm not in a reactive mind. I know if I'm expressing a quality of harmony and connection and love and joy. I know if I'm feeling peaceful. That awareness itself is a very powerful state that, that, that gets stronger and stronger and vaster and more boundless, more infinite. This, in a way, is what we're cultivating as we really trust into the awareness itself. In fact, kind of lean into the awareness, not so much in the experience itself. The experience will come and go, will come and go. Thoughts and feelings and sensations and emotions are all coming and going. But the awareness can be steady. In that, con- in that connectivity of the experience. So this, this awareness is the first point of equanimity and metta. Because of the quality of care, the quality of embrace, the quality of kindness, the non-interfering, like it's not really interfering. It doesn't need to fix the experience, to change the experience, for it to be different. That's that's not awareness's job. Awareness simply knows. And then through that, the wisdom, the learning, the knowledge, the understanding, because we're present, because we're engaged, because we're connected, we can then begin to understand not only myself, but others and the mind and, and the world and the way things are. We understand the nature and the laws of this nature, the nature of existence. And our our wisdom and our understanding grows and through the awareness develops. In fact, one of my teachers, U Tejaniya, calls doesn't even really call this awareness just by itself, but calls it awareness wisdom. Because the awareness, the awareness is a conduit for the wisdom to come through and to grow. And so, this our, so our practice in some ways is very, very simple. It's very simple. Because all we really need to do is continue to return back to the present moment and say, what's happening? What's happening now? What's happening in my mind? What's happening in my heart? What's happening in my feelings? What's happening in my body? And that, in some ways, we might say that is the foundation of our practice. It's why we wanted to bring mindfulness in as a foundation here on this retreat, and then have the opportunity to recognize the beautiful qualities of mind that would come through, be expressed through, uh, not even through, but the awareness takes on these different kinds of qualities, different kinds of expressions in its purity. When the mind isn't cluttered by unnecessary things. It's that beautiful um, uh, quote from Wu Men, the 13th century Chinese Zen master, who said, if your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, then this is the best season of your life. This is the best season of your life. 
And so we get to look at the ways that our mind becomes clouded, the way our mind becomes distorted. And when we talk about the mind, and I think uh, Greg mentioned, you know, mind and heart in, in uh, the ancient uh, languages are not different. The word is chitta, chitta, for mind and for heart. And so as we purify the mind, we're purifying the heart. One, it's one. And, and I can often sense how as my mind frees up and becomes less tangled up in the grasping and the aversion and the confusion, that there's almost a way I experience the mind dropping into a lower part of my body, once I can feel the mind dropping into my heart. So that rather than the energy being so caught up up here in my head, which is kind of, you know, where you feel all the neurons firing, all the, you know, the brain energy, as, the, as we're not relying as much on the brain, the memory, the database, and we're sensing more and more into our direct experience through awareness and wisdom, it's almost like uh, the, the location of our center starts to shift. Start to feel, I feel more connected in my belly and in my heart, and I'm moving more from the lower part of my body rather than you know, from the head. And oftentimes, you know, when we're really caught up in the head, we can almost feel like we're out of balance, like the head just is pull, pulling us, we're leaning forward, we're toppling forward through all of our ideas and our impulses and the forces and the drives, and we're kind of, you know, kind of being led around almost like a bull with a ring in its nose, you know? And as we re- relax and release that, all that having to know through the intellect, and breathe and relax a little bit more and change that center of focus, we actually feel that, can feel a shift in the body and in the relationships and in the engagements and the way of moving in the world, actually feel the energy moving more fully through the whole body, become more embodied in this way. Perhaps you've had this kind of experience where you can actually feel more directly when you're sensing from your heart. And Greg's been mentioning that sometimes, you know, saying, well, we'll put, we can put our hands there, just put your fingers in the area around the heart, and it bringing a little bit more attention to what's happening there. What's the quality of the energy? What's happening there? So we can begin to shift that center of focus for ourselves. So in this way, we begin to lighten up. We're lightening up our practice, our practice of equanimity. Equanimity it can be certainly these, this practice of the repetition of the phrases, which has been a really important practice for me in, over the years, the Brahma-Vahara practice. And then there's the equanimity practice as mindfulness practice. The equanimity that arises purely from this point of awareness, where the awareness is not in conflict with. And then as that grows, and as that develops, there is more and more acceptance of the way things are. There's more and more allowing of the way things are. 
there's less struggle, there's less resistance, there's less rejection of our experience because we see, well, that's just the way things are. Which is really is one of the equanimity phrases. May I accept the way things are, just as they are. It's a beautiful equanimity phrase. May I accept things just as they are. We remind ourselves about that. We, we, we say that to ourselves. It brings us into this place of mindful awareness where we're not as much in conflict with and struggling with what's occurring. So in this way, we're going to peeling back the layers of our reactivity. We're peeling back the layers of our attachment and our aversion. That's what our reactivity is. And we get caught in our wanting what we want and pushing away what we don't want and this controlling and demanding and uh, expecting and already as I say it I can see my fists are getting tight you know it's like I want things to be the way I want them to be and we get very tight very constricted that way this is our reactivity and as we bring the mindfulness to that and the breathing such a valuable resource just ah, breathe and let go recognize what's happening and let go through the breath through feeling through the body what's what's happening in the body is there tension holding tightness breathe let go sometimes we can't let go And letting go, again, doesn't have to be a complete letting go because we can get these ideas, well, I need, if I'm let go, then then I'm let go completely and I'm not bothered at all. I had this one colleague who is a uh, a somatic experience trainer, works with trauma, and she continually reminds us that all the letting go, the letting go only has to be a nano letting go. It's a nano, like one little muscle in the shoulder just <laughs> releases. Or just the, the belly just, just releases a tiny bit, you know. Or the uh, hands just relax. Just a nano moment of letting go. It doesn't, we have these ideas that it has to be all the way. But our practice is just a moment. It's just a moment where we can just release, recognize and release, recognize and release. And moment to moment to moment to moment, as we continue to cultivate that and develop that, it's very powerful and very uh, strengthening and, and then expanding as well. So our practice, peeling away the layers, peeling away the layers, little by little by little. In this way, we begin to stop fighting with the conditions of our life because the conditions in our life are the way they are. All the conditions in our life are arising in this moment dependent on all the past causes and conditions that have gone before. There's already a whole momentum that has been set in place 
from the past that we are now experiencing in the present. So one teacher said, if you want to understand your present, look at your past. Because all the influences of what's arising in this moment are because of everything that's gone before. And if you want to understand your future, if you want to know your future, then look at your present. Because all of the the conditions here that are happening in this moment and the way that we respond to the conditions in this moment are going to set the conditions for the future moment. So it's not, it's, it's actually not rocket science, you know, it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty clear that if I want to change my future in a particular way, then this, I need to be doing something different in the present. Otherwise, the same thing is going to get generated again and again and again. So what we're actually dealing with in the present moment, in some ways, the conditions have already arisen, and then we become aware of it. Conditions arise, awareness arises and knows that. There's almost a little gap. Because awareness recognizes what's happening, but before the mind can make any meaning out of it through thoughts and concepts and going into its database to make sense out of something, there's already already a little gap. It's already arisen. Conditions have already arisen. There's nothing we can do about that. We're just trying to make sense out of what has arisen. So what our job is, is to see if we can respond to the conditions that have arisen in a skillful way without creating more pain and suffering for ourselves and for other people. And this is the wisdom. This is where we can bring the wisdom to the fore as much as possible. And these practices and these teachings help us untangle the pain and the suffering and the sorrow and all the confusion and the, uh, the, 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 the uh, lack of understanding give us some way to begin to make sense out of all of that. So it's so interesting the way we judge ourselves and get angry about things and you know want things to be different, but they've already arisen. They're already starting like that. Even if it's an idea of what's going to happen in the future, that has arisen in the present moment. How am I going to respond to that? What am I going to do with that? So that I'm not continuing to create more pain and suffering for myself and for others. So I'm talking about kind of this is sort of an ordinary, our ordinary approach to uh, uh, going about our day because, because the conditions are going to be joyful and the conditions are going to be painful. That is the way things are in this world. The 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, you know, or what we might call, what the Buddha calls, um, the eight worldly winds that are blowing all the time in this world. You know, the winds of praise and blame, the winds of gain and loss, the winds of fame and disrepute, the winds of pleasure and pain. That's what's blowing all the time. 
There's always going to be praise and blame. There's always going to be gain and loss. There's always going to be success and failures. There's always going to be pleasure. There's always going to be pain. That's the world that we live in. That's our human condition. So what are we going to do about it? That's really what the Buddha is asking us and and pointing, giving us tools, giving us direction. What are we going to do about our human condition? What are we going to do about this predicament that we find ourselves in? I've been uh, teaching in New Zealand for uh, about the last 20 years. I have, it's actually good fortune, very good fortune that I get to go there every year. And I, it started because I met some friends when I was traveling in India. And um, uh, one of the friends invited me to come to New Zealand um, some 20 some years ago. And I've just been going and offering some courses there ever since. And some of you may know that about um, three years ago, there was a rather major earthquake in the city of Christchurch. And Christchurch is one of the places where there's a sangha. There's a community of people who practice there. And um, in, uh, it was September 2010, there was a a 6.3 quake. And the city had been uh, well known to be retrofitted for earthquakes. It was actually a, um, a model of a city that because they, they're on a fault line. And so they really had built their, their structures well. So the 6.3 really didn't do very much at all. The, the city uh, survived that quake. But the problem was was there continued to be many, many aftershocks. And in the first week after that first earthquake, there were over 360 aftershocks in one week. And it just continued like that. There were just, you know, my friends who live in Christchurch were talking about, uh, you know, my one friend who has two young boys, talking about how at night, you know, the, the house would just start shaking. And that was after the big one, you know. And they, they lived with this uncertainty of really never knowing if another big earthquake was going to come. And it would go on. They would have hundreds of aftershocks for months. And then in um, February of 2011, so this was about six months later, there was a very big quake, a 7.1. And... Um, they call that an aftershock. It was another aftershock. But it was so devastating because the city had just been rumbling for six months of these, all these aftershocks that it um, killed 148 people. And it's not a, lo- a very, very huge city. It's a, some, so everybody knew somebody who was killed in the earthquake. And it completely devastated the whole downtown, the whole inner city. Most of all the buildings were uh, cracked or fell down or destroyed. The whole inner city uh, downtown area fell apart when, and with, a, with the deaths of these people. Plus, more and more aftershocks for months 
after that. In June, there was another big 5.7. So this is almost, you know, like a year, a year later. And they're just living, my, my, my friends are just living with these aftershocks. And I would be getting emails and, you know, stories about the way, with the liquefaction in the, in the land because it's very close to sea level. The, um, uh, the land would just turn to kind of um, like quicksand. And it would just, just <laughs> big holes would just, Streets would fall apart, driveways were falling apart, houses were cracking. I mean, this whole, it was really, I mean, it's phenomenal what, this, what was happening in this beautiful, beautiful old city of Christchurch and, and what people were experiencing there. So I, um, I went this past March, this is about um, uh, two years after the big quake, I went and um, my friends took me on a tour. It's called the Red Zone. It's an area that's completely cordoned off and it's huge. Not only the downtown, they're re- rebuilding the downtown, but they're, they've cordoned off this very, very vast, uh, large residential area that the, nobody can go back to their houses. I mean, streets and streets and streets. But there's, there, some of it's open so you can drive and just see what's happened to some of the areas. And I drove with my friends and looked at, the, at this, what was once a beautiful community of old houses, and it looked like a war zone. I mean, the houses are empty, the streets are all broken up, uh, there's now some graffiti on the houses, the windows are boarded up. And it's just, just phenomenal to feel and experience the impact of that which was once a, you know, a thriving, alive, happy place. So many people affected, so many lives changed by this disaster, by this crisis. And I remember as I was driving through the red zone and feeling, you know, just allowing myself to feel the impact of this. And it wasn't like I, you know, when we think about equanimity, I think about equanimity as if, you know, somehow I'm not supposed to be feeling or, or people aren't supposed to feel or have a reaction or a response to, you know, seeing their, their, the city the way it is, people's lives the way it is, you know, the devastation the way it is. It's a huge impact, a huge wave of feelings and emotions. And so bringing any kind of idea, any image, any spiritual spiritualized idea about how to be with that or how to respond to that. It just, it makes no sense. But yet there's a practice. There's still a practice that we can bring to that. So the question is, what is the practice? But the practice really is to stay present, to stay present with what's arising. What's arising is arising in response to the real and true conditions that are being witnessed, that are being uh, uh, observed, or not only observed, but engaged with. And to allow, to make space for, to feel the feelings that are moving through. There's grief and there's sorrow, there's pain, there's um, shock. And that's all real and valid and natural. 
and yet not to, with the equanimity and with the mindfulness, there's a way to be able to stay grounded through the breath, through the, the feeling of the body, uh, through feeling, feeling and sensing what's actually happening in the body, staying in the present moment so the mind doesn't get overwhelmed. Because we see how easy it is to get overwhelmed how easy it is that our mind can pull us into different ways. We get frightened or angry or it's an injustice. It shouldn't have happened. Why did it happen this way? It shouldn't have happened. But the Dhamma says an equanimity invites us to reflect on the fact that, that all things unfold according to a natural law. Everything unfolds, everything arises and passes according to a natural law, to the Dhamma. And we may not be able to understand it with our intellect. We may not be able to make sense out of it. We cannot justify it. We, it's just the way it is. And sometimes when we say the equanimity phrase of things are the way they are, it can almost seem a little cold or a little uh, detached or somehow we're, we're not really caring, not caring. But it's, a, it's a, a statement of wisdom. Equanimity is a wisdom factor. It's the arising of wisdom that sees things clearly, sees things the way they are. And things in Christchurch are the way they are. And the more that I can stay grounded or people can stay grounded and connected and present, then it's more possible to respond and engage with the circumstance in a way that's actually going to be helpful, (laughs) that's going to make a difference. This is really the power of the equanimity and the power of the mindfulness the power of staying in the present moment as much as we can with what's occurring so that we're not pulled into the despair, into the, into the, the grief, and into the anger and the pain. Yes, we will feel that. And of course, those feelings are there, and we make space for all of that. And then we support ourselves and each other so that we don't get lost in that. We don't lose ourselves. We don't, we don't get pulled down. This is the equanimity. And this is the love. This is the metta. When I was there this last time as well, they, they have what's called an earthquake museum. And you can go in and, and they just have the records of everything that's happened over the last three years and pictures and uh, they have uh, the spire of the church that fell down, the, the old, old landmark church, the spires in there. And you can kind of go in and it's, it's, a very, it's almost like a church. It's very, very sacred to walk through there. And, and, um, and in, the, in the front they even have, uh, I think they have some kind of prayer book or or some kind of um, uh, beautiful sacred items. You can really, they really hold it with a, a sacred uh, uh, feeling. They, have, they had a, 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 an ongoing movie of recordings of people who were uh, 
victims, victims of the earthquake, and their stories. And the, the camera went very close to their face, and they were telling their stories. And they, they would tell their story for about five, ten minutes. And they would tell a story, usually, of how it was for them in regard to wondering where one of their loved ones was. So there would be a mother talking about not knowing what happened at the school where her child was. Or, and then what happened when she saw the child. You can imagine, you know, in that, in that crisis, not knowing what happened to the school. And then, and then as she's telling the stories, the tears just coming down her cheeks, just saying how, how amazing it was to see the child and the, uh, holding the child and the love that was just pouring out that the child was alive and well. And, and then another woman talking about her husband who was at work and not knowing what happened to the building and you know, seeing the husband, running to the husband and the embrace and the love. And then the first responders and you know, their stories. And it's just the, uh, so much emotion and feeling that's arising in response to that. And seeing how universal our, our feelings are that we, we're all touched in the same way, that we all care about our loved ones. We care about each other. We want to support each other. And the heart just pouring out with love and compassion and care. So equanimity, these, these, these qualities, you know, I think the, the point I'm wanting to make is these qualities are not... We're not trying to get to a place in any way where somehow we deny our human condition. We're not trying to get to a place where somehow all that goes away. Where we, we, they say that equanimity is the goal in the practice. But we can think that the goal in the practice then might be not to be, you know, we don't feel anything anymore. We're just so, you know, so blissed out you know, and just so happy in ourselves that nothing touches us anymore. <laughs> I don't think that, I think, you know, when we speak about love and compassion and, and joy and equanimity, we are talking about being alive. Being alive. And being alive means being connected and being engaged and being Uh, meeting each other and being in relationship with each other and supporting each other. And it may be that we take time to pull away from people for a while and do more solo practice or quiet practice and taking time to be with ourselves more and more. But it really often happens that as we do that, it brings us more fully into life and engagement. So we can be present with others in a way where we're not so caught in our self-cherishing ideas, in our preoccupations, in our attachments, in our aversions, in our reactions. That we can be in a place that is more balanced, that is more spacious, that is more accepting. So equanimity, we call this equanimity, is, is a radical acceptance in this way. It's a radical acceptance because it's accepting all conditions the way they are. All conditions. The 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows, radically accepting all of that. 
But it's not an acceptance that is a passive acceptance. This is where I think sometimes people get a little bit confused with acceptance. Like we're supposed to just accept things and then, you know, then we wouldn't do anything. (laughs) But it's an acceptance that is, is accepting. It means that there's a stillness that's not reacting so that we can see clearly the situation and then respond with wisdom, with compassion, with love. And as we do that, there is a delight. There's a delight in the presence. There's a delight in the engagement. There's a delight in being alive. So, of course, we'll have ideas, you know, our our images and our ideas about how we're supposed to feel or experience or engage or, or, or look. But the wisdom, the wisdom informs us to let it go, let go of those ideas, let go of those images and see what's here, see what's real. See what's true in this moment. The mindfulness, moment to moment to moment, with care, with a care and affectionate attention. This is really what we have been pointing to over the days here together. Grounding our practice, grounding our practice in this present moment returning back when we find ourselves lost and distracted, returning back again and again and again. And seeing that what's arising, we can, we, we, we can have a whole different way, a whole different attitude of looking at the conditions in our life. As one yogi said once on a retreat, said, I wouldn't change anything. I've learned so much. I wouldn't change anything. And sometimes we we get there, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, I don't like the way things are, but you know, I'm I'm learning so much. These so many gifts I'm receiving from these difficult situations. This from Mary Oliver, she said, in her sleep, she dreamed this poem, The Uses of Sorrow. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this too was a gift. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this too was a gift. But it did take her years, right? (laughs) It wasn't like she got it right away. (laughs) So we're cultivating these beautiful qualities. Kindness, compassion, patience, gratitude, forgiveness, equanimity. Go on and on qualities of truthfulness. 
being careful the way we are in our life so we're not causing ourselves and others more pain and sorrow. Diminishing suffering for ourselves and others and increasing happiness for ourselves and others. This is a beautiful gift, beautiful offering. So let's sit quietly just for a moment. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, then this is the best season in your life. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.